Previously on Story Logical. <laughs> <laughs> Why did Emma turn into a gangster? Because the chicken crossed the road. This is Story Logical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. What are we drinking tonight? Tonight's cocktail is the uh, sweet and dry Manhattan. Both at the same time? Well, no. Oh, okay. Uh, my cocktail is a regular Manhattan. But with a little twist, because I like to go for a bourbon rather than a rye whiskey. All right. And what uh, what did you prepare for me this evening? You have a dry Manhattan with a bourbon also, but with a dry martini. And no cherry for you, because you're strange and you don't so like them. what is a... Um, oh, I don't like the, the sweet ones, no. No, you could put a... You could put a dry cherry in my Manhattan. I don't think such a thing exists. Uh, I think they're called raisins. <laughs> the story I picked for this week is Hattrick by Edgar Carrot, uh, which is in his collection, The Girl on the Fridge. So Hattrick is about a magician in Israel, presumably in Israel because Edgar Carrot is Israeli, and he talks about being paid in shekels. So it's about a magician who reaches into his magical hat and pulls out his rabbit, but... On the day in question, the rabbit is somewhat lighter than he anticipates. And I'm going to read you the little paragraph uh, which concerns that because I think it's very beautiful. I pulled Kazan by the ears and something about him felt a little strange, lighter. My hand swung up in the air, my eyes still fixed on the audience. And then, suddenly, there was something wet on my wrist and the chubby girl started to scream. In my right hand, I was holding Kazam's head with his long ears and wide-open rabbit eyes. Just the head, no body. Readers, that is on page two of this short story. Uh, two or four, it is short, it is mm, the opposite of sweet. I don't know what the opposite of sweet is if it's not bitter. Uh, sour. <laughs> what it reminded me of was a punk song, because it, it comes in it comes in a little slow, and then it picks up speed, and then it gets really fast and really horrible. <laughs> Super aggressive. Emotionally, and, and then and then it stops. Mm-hmm. He just drops drops the guitar, walks off stage. That's very true. I love I love what he does in. So the story is like I say, it's four pages long. It's about this magician who pulls his severed rabbit's head out of a, out of his hat at a kid's party, and it manages to escalate from that starting point, which is kind of wonderful, and it manages to convey this incredible sense of despondency and despair in the magician and his his frustration with life with trying to understand how people work how kids work how how is there so much kind of hunger for brutalism in the world and yet it's such a small tiny little story that describes two children's parties uh, and a couple of dreams yeah, I felt like there are so many ways that he has packed in to read this story. And it's so short, and it is, on the surface, so simple. Because so little seems to happen. Like a lot of stories that I love, it's just full of images that you never quite shake out of your head. Like the the image of him rummaging around in his hat and finding the ears and head of the rabbit and then feeling like, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit lighter. It's and so a bit weird wet. and gruesome. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, and it sticks with you. And then and then the next time when he's feeling around and it's like, oh, this is this is about the right weight, but it doesn't seem furry anymore. Yeah, and just leave that there for you to imagine what that was that he pulled out of the hat. 
one of the things I love, though, about the way he escalates the story, like I said, is it like it reminded me of a punk song that it goes and then stops. It just stops dead. And it's because he, he escalates it and that, you know, he pulls one dead thing out of the hat and then he pulls another dead thing out of the hat. And then the story itself performs the same kind of magic trick on us that, that the magician is going through. So because there's no third thing. There is no third thing that he pulls out of the hat. So the magician, right, he's in the story. The magician has been pulling a rabbit out of his hat, a rabbit out of his hat. And then he pulls, he pulls a dead rabbit out of his hat. And I feel like the story in the same way is like, oh, okay, here's this situation. Mm-hmm. The guy pulls a rabbit out of his hat. And now he's going to pull a dead rabbit out of his hat. Now he's going to pull another dead thing out of his hat. And where another story that we're so used to and maybe a bit blasé towards would give us a conclusion, would give us... Yeah, they would, give us they some, would fill that in. They would fill it in. They would give you some something that was satisfying in a normal way or something where you felt like the character grew. And what, Carrot, what Edgar, what is his name? Edgar. Edgar. Yeah, what Edgar does is he, is he, does, he gives podcast. us the same thing where he, like, at the end of the story, he just pulls out, like, despair. He's like, here, despair. <laughs> yeah. Here you go. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, and that's... Um, and he... I think despair is so completely right. There is something mm. horribly despairing about children's entertainment people. Like that whole kind of fake smile, fake persona. I am imagining sequins. I had a very rough evening in a um, holiday camp by the seaside one year where it was off season. There was uh, a guy trying to do entertainment in a cavernous room for three children, one of whom was throwing a tantrum. And it was just me and the guy I was dating at the time watching from the sidelines. And it was pitiful and sad. And I was almost in tears by the end of it. And this story makes use of that kind of uh despair where people aren't paying attention to you where you're really trying to get somewhere and and not not being able to arrive at that level of understanding that level of connection with the people around you there was another way where i read the story too this this the blaséness or despair that you that you're describing that you know um children's entertainers have for me it just it just sort of drifted out it, it's just it's just the way life is like the blasé look that the kids had to this guy pulling a rabbit out of a hat, a trick we've seen a thousand times before, is the same look that people have when they pull an Uber out of their pocket now. For me, the story, uh, along with, you know, giving us that despair that you associate with children's entertainers, it it, it gives us real magic. Because to me, true magic, like true love, there has to be an element of surprise in it. And there has to be an element of terror in it as well, the sense that it could all go horribly wrong. Like the first time someone saw... A magician saw a person in half that would have been terrifying if he didn't know how they did it you know and so i feel like the story gives us that they're like all these kids are blasé there's this guy that's performing this magic trip that he's performed a thousand times before and then when he's confronted with real magic something unexpected and impossible the story gives us one response which is to just give in to despair and give up we don't know the third time he pulled something out it could have been something amazing wonderful it could have been like Pandora's box where he just takes out horrible thing, horrible thing, horrible thing. And then eventually he pulls out hope. Instead, he just he just sits awake thinking about 
the two things that happened to him that were bad, trying to figure them out. And we know there's no hope for him. There's no ability to change Mm -hmm. if he's given up completely on dreaming even because he won't even go to sleep because he's afraid of what lies in the dark of his mind. I And I really think that Edgar nailed that fear. The, The terrifying thing in this story is that the magician not only is full of despair now at his own career, but full of despair at his inability to understand or control a kind of a bloodlust in the children. And, you know, by extrapolation, the whole of society. Because the kids love the shit out of the severed rabbit's head. They want more, they cheer. He becomes the most popular magician in the whole of whatever town he lives in. And... That is the thing that makes it most horrifying. You mentioned the word terror before, uh, terror and wonder, and I'm that is the the combination that makes this story really sing for me. Terror and wonder and weirdness, like, it really jumps on all those buttons. Yeah, I mean, there there is, there's nothing that is truly wonderful, like in the original sense of the word, that does not also contain within it an element of terror. I wish that the horror genre was called Ooh. terror because I okay. would read stories that were about evoking that sense as opposed to what I feel like a lot of the horror genre is, is about jump scares. Yeah. What you're looking for, I mean, what, you're, what you want is the gothic, like the, the gothic, the, the original form of the horror story, if you look at it that way, was about yep. uh, evoking um, what it called the sublime, which is a kind of of terror and wonder mingled together you're talking about like the like the terror when you go into the rockies in colorado and just see these endless giant crags of rock that seem both bigger than anything you can imagine and more beautiful and more terrifying what's the machine called what uh in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy that shows you how insignificant you are in comparison to the size of the universe um, I do not remember what that machine is called, except that the chapter or, or something that's like called the total perspective. So maybe it's... Total something. perspective vortex. Yes. That's it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, you, uh, like the, the idea that the feeling you had that, you know, he, he was terrified at his inability to control the bloodlust and others. I really, I think that that is true. And I think also I, I read it that he that that he was also terrified at his inability to control his own magic for the magic to be what he had always expected it to be because there's one bit in the story where he says i can't do that trick anymore i used to love it but just thinking about it now makes my hands shake i keep imagining what terrible things i might wind up pulling out of there the things waiting inside and that stuck with me Every time I read it, I I hit those words, the things waiting inside. And I think about how terrified he was to shut his eyes and to sleep and how he thinks, what a crazy person I was to have treated going to sleep so blithely, you know, to surrender myself to dreams and the terrors of the darkness inside my own mind (laughs) that I was like, yeah, yeah, that is a little scary. That fits so well with what Edgar Carrot said when we saw him read that one of the things he said was, Uh, The only way he knew of how to write a story that is smarter than you are is just to to trust in your characters and follow them wherever you go and essentially surrender yourself to the process of writing and to what happens. And you can kind of just see that writing for him is probably this wonderful, terrifying process. Uh, And that comes through and it 
it kind of sings off the page. Is this the right moment now to tell the story of how I was too shy to go and get the book signed by him? Oh, readers, yes. it was so... I love Edgar Carrot's stories so hard. Uh, we went to see him read. Uh, he was touring for um, Seven Good Years, which is a kind of a memoir about him and his family, which I actually haven't read yet. And it was a tiny venue in the London Review Bookshop, and I guess there are 30 people, 50 people in the audience. And I bought the book, but then I was too shy to queue up and go and get it signed because his stories have meant so much to me over the last five years that it was almost more than I could bear. So I had to send Chris up instead. Oh, is it? Do I pick up the story now? Yeah. So I, I, I went up to, to Edgar Carrot and I said, hello. And I said, can you, can you sign this book? And he said, who, who would you like to sign it to? And I said, can you sign it to Emma, uh, my wife who really, really loves you and who gave me your book after the end of Clarion when we had to go back to our original lives. I went back to Nashville and she went back to England and she sent me, sent me your book. And it sort of became this emblem of connection between us. And so it's special to me too. And he said, oh, it's, it's too bad she couldn't be here. And I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, she's here. She's, she's sitting over there. She was just too, too afraid to come up. And he was like, oh, you should, you should go get her. And I was like, I, you know, I don't want to make her come up. And he's like, okay, okay, well, you just tell her that it's, it's totally cool if you want to come up. Um, but what is your name? Because I want to sign it to both of you. And so he asked my name. And he, he signed it to Chris and Emma, and he drew drew us, uh, a little Chris and a little Emma, in a boat on a sea. And he wished us happy adventures. And, and it, yeah, it was very, very sweet. What a very sweet man. So my story this week is a story called The Philosophers by Adam Elric Sachs from the February 1st issue of The New Yorker. It is just many things that I love. It is delightful. It is intelligent. It is hilarious. It is silly. It has a really surprising number of hats. Uh, it reminded me a bit of Monty Python, but uh, not that it. But it was different. It reminded me of Python, but it was different. Not that it was less absurd, because it is absurd. But there's just there's just more emotion in it. There's a little bit more earnest emotion in it. But it, wow. I think that's a really interesting comparison because it is. It's a short, short story, but it's there's three separate stories inside it. So it is mm -hmm. almost like three sketches on, you know, an etude on uh, parenting skills or the lack of them. Oh, yeah, exa exactly, exactly. Those those three sections did remind me of three skits, and it also reminded me of something else. Uh, but before I talk about that, uh, I want to talk about a writer that, that Emma introduced me to last week called Jeff Noon, who's this amazing cyberpunk wordsmith. He wrote a lot at the beginning of his career about Manchester and the drugged-out rave culture there, kind of transforming the ecstatic force of all these dancing people into into something that was like an exploration of digital culture. He's uh, a, a wonderfully artistic science fictional writer. That is exactly, what is so delightful about exactly. him. Yeah, 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 exactly, artistic. So we saw him interviewed at this pub... Um, called The Reliance. Not that you need to know the name of the pub, but if you ever want to, to stalk the pub, we won't ever be <laughs> back there. Um, so he said that he studied visual arts in school before he ever did writing, and particularly painting. And he's always carried this drive, Jeff Noon, into writing, where he would look at different aspects of different forms of art, art different, <laughs> different forms of art, uh, different aspects of different forms of art, say, sampling aspect of dubstep. Surprisingly difficult to say. <laughs> Try saying that a lot. Sampling aspect. The sampling of, aspect of dubstep. Anyway, uh, 
or or like oil painting the way the colors kind of go down soft at first and you can smudge them around and he says he was always asking himself how could you do that with words and this story in the new yorker the philosophers it reminded me of that because it's basically a triptych the triptych is a work of visual art usually like a panel painting where you have three panels uh hinged together often uh that show these three somehow related scenes and i felt like adam uh, for the philosophers, it was like he was staring at a triptych and he wondered, you know, how could I do that with words? And then this story was the result of that. It definitely it. feels like an artistic exercise. Like, you, nobody's going to pick up this story and be like, yeah, that took me on an amazing romp through time and history. Uh, in fact, that is exactly what it took me on. Oh, that really? was an amazing romp through time and history. What are you? Yeah, go because, ahead. because for me... For me, it was an allegory. It was purely and simply about, okay, let's describe these three different types of relationships that men can have with their fathers. And let's explore how destructive they are in, in these three different ways. But at no point did I feel like he was asking me to really connect to the characters. It was, it was all about push, push, push. How can I, how can I show you how painful this kind of relationship is? And that's interesting, but it's not something that is a romp through time and history. Wow, wow. So you, you were only responded to the pain in the in these stories. You, was there fun? Yeah, there was a lot of... So, uh, like, okay. So that is too big of a thing to just <laughs> jump right into. Was there fun? Uh, so let's, let's back up for a minute. So in the story, there's these three parts. In the first part, called Our System, we see these this lineage of fathers and sons trying to pass down the philosophy of the ages, first developed by some great, 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 grandfather and the thing is this family has a disease where alas before long they lose control of their muscles and so it's difficult to speak and they develop this system of eye twitches tongue tapping lip sucking and so forth and there's this image at the end of all these men in a sick room passing their knowledge down the generations through these kind of twitters and twitches uh and uh and in the second part two hats we see a man uh the son who's trying to write a biography of his philosopher father and in doing this, he finds it difficult to exist as both son and biographer. So he takes to wearing two different hats, a Red Sox cap when he wants to remember that he is the son of his father, a fedora when he wants to remember that he's the biographer of his father. Why a fedora? I don't know. I guess just a sense of professionalism. I, uh, um, Everyone knows a fedora is a professional hat. Yeah. Hitman, I think, is what I associate it with. <laughs> like Whereas a Red Sox, I don't know, are they a good baseball team? It is baseball, right? Um... They're a good baseball team for this story since historically they are a hopeless team that people love to root for. And when you were saying oh, that God. this story more, more when you were saying that this story was full of pain and hopelessness, I was like, Oh, that is that is right there that, that it feels like uh, it was just a, a completely different perspective on life. Because when I read these stories of these people, it is it is a story of relationships between a father and son. But to me, it's also just the story of any present person, somebody that is alive, trying to connect to their past. It is all about the present, trying to have a conversation with the past, whether it's men or fathers. And to me, it's no more destructive or painful than anything else in life. When I read this story of these people trying and trying and trying to figure out a way to connect and converse with their past, to me, I'm so touched and so connected with that desire and i feel like this sense of ridiculous hope 
and like the ridiculous efforts that people go through in, a, in trying to connect to something. I I didn't so much find that 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 desire to connect in this story. I more saw the writer trying to tell us how difficult it is to connect or how mm-hmm. difficult it is to create. So yeah, yeah, exactly. In the, fir- in the exactly. first story where you've got a letter at a time passed down from father to son to son to son, literally one letter at a time, I just thought, okay, so you're telling us that the creative journey is tough. I get it. Just the creative journey. But, I mean, they're, they're sending their creation through time and space, grandfather to grandson and on and on. I, I guess... I guess my my challenge with the, with this story is that as a white British woman, I did not find myself anywhere in it. I felt like the story started out with, oh, it's so tough to be the the descendant of a smart philosopher. Oh, it's so tough to be the most intelligent man on earth. Oh, it's so hard oh. to be bright and and it feels like such a such a limited way to view fit to view characters to to be like oh this is this is a philosopher that's that's a man and i can't see myself in it and i can totally totally empathize with that when when a story can present a variety of characters in a variety of of places then i can start to to build myself or it builds my empathy out of these different components but i just found that all of the people were struggling with the same ideas and with the same types of people across time and history. And it began to feel like, it began to feel very self-obsessed. Yeah, I feel like some people, they associate this idea of of, uh, of a stereotypical story in The New Yorker that's about smart white men dealing with being smart. And I feel like sometimes, like in this case, that that's, such a limited reading like if i if i read a story about some poor kid in mumbai and i'm like oh well i'm sorry it's a poor kid in mumbai i don't see myself in that story i don't know how to relate to their struggles i i would find like that to me is so sad i get it i get it but when 90 percent of the stories that you the that I come across, unless you seek out alternative versions of the truth, when the the truth that's presented to you is this smart white male viewpoint on the world, it becomes harder and harder to empathize with it, and harder to say, "Oh, that's fine. I can kind of subsume my own viewpoint and and take on this mantle." But what is it? What is it that you're having to subsume about about the struggle with trying to connect to your past and your generations? For so for like, the story builds up to the last part. There's called called the Madman's Time Machine, where we where we this homeless man is discovered by the police in a cardboard box, on whose side the man has just written the words "Time Machine," um, and he tells the story of how about how until recently he was the most intelligent person in history smarter even than einstein if only by a little bit and newton if only by a little bit and how he was very bored and so he built a time machine and traveled through time discussing gravity with galileo and buoyancy with archimedes bringing fermat into the near future to discuss bagels until he eventually got bored with that too and decided to go back in time to kill his grandfather just to explore that paradox and for me like so we so we have a triptych. So we've got these three different but very related images about our attempts to converse with the past, the kind of hopeless hopefulness of it, because we keep trying. We continue to beat against the current of time, trying to connect to the past. 
Um, so like that, that, that yearning just spoke to me, not in terms of it being fathers and sons, but just in terms of it being humans caught in the inevitable flow of time. And what I loved is how the three scenes combined into this, this larger whole where ultimately there is an arc into the story and that in the beginning it's, it's, um, this ridiculousness of, of physical, you know, physical twitching to get somehow information passed across time. And then in the middle, there's an attempt by a son to just write about their father. And then they feel subsumed in the attempts to write about their father. And so they start following this absurd but logical path of wearing all these different hats to try to categorize all their different possible relationships with their father. And then in the third story, it's like you have this burst of the most hopeful and hopeless situation because in giving us that imaginative journey of being able to talk to Galileo about gravity, Mm -hmm. suddenly it's like everything is so easy and we're conversing with the past and we're bringing the past into the future. And it's so bright and so beautiful but then you have the image of this guy being a, a someone homeless living in a cardboard box that it is it is also the most crushing and it reminded me of how like with my mom and dad who who both died several years ago of how sometimes even though they are very dead i imagine talking with them about things that are happening to me now and i imagine talking to them about things that happened in the past walking back through my memories remembering conversations, sometimes imagining them going differently. And in those moments, I feel really connected with them. But I also feel, you know, I can understand, I also feel kind of homeless. Like, those are the moments I feel really disconnected with the present. Uh, kind of like how when we saw The Force Awakens, and I was, I was both really happy and really sad imagining the mom and dad being there watching it with us. And that's, that was what the story evoked in me, was that memory of watching Star Wars and imagining being able to talk to my mom and dad about it and feeling really happy about it and hopeful, but then also feeling like, but, but I can't, I just can't do it, but I never stop trying. I think that that saying that you are able to look beyond the specific relationships that are defined in this story to say, oh, but it applies to all, all humans. It's just people wanting to connect with their past. I think that is the definition of privilege because what you're saying is yeah that echoes with my experience and therefore it is applicable to everybody or it could be well the emotion the emotions are applicable to my experience just like when i read uh salman rushdie writing about about india or i read um octavia butler writing about uh or you know being a black woman in the present being sent back into the past to be a slave like i think for me my desire to connect to the past um, and other people who are not white, who have grown up in cultures that aren't from the US and the UK, their relationships with ancestors are very different. Their relationships with their families are very different. For me, my relationship with my mother and father is wildly different to the thing that is described here. And so I, I yes, don't yeah, feel... Very, much. very different from my relationship to my parents. Yeah, yeah but I just... I couldn't, I couldn't connect to it. Something I did find quite delicious about this story was its obsession with hats. And I think this guy who fragments his relationship to his father gets up to something like 128 hats at one point. And although I was 
kind of um, wondering about quite such a literal interpretation of, you know, wearing of many hats, it was still delicious to watch the author list out all of the different types of hats, including a sombrero, a fedora. Uh, where's the list? We got, we got some berets and bandanas, a small straw hat. Yeah. And yeah. it reminded me of Nabokov saying that you should always give a character a funny hat. <laughs> One of the, the very powerful part of that story with the, the man with the many hats is that he, I think I'm right in saying he's only referred to as his father's son. And that seems yeah. like a terribly sad occurrence. And, and, I, and I did actually empathize with that because I'm a younger sister. And for many years, I was always, you know, my brother's sister. And so it can be a very, a very small place to live your life from. But what was so kind of sad about that that part of the story is that we didn't see the the guy who wears all these hats step beyond it we just see him sort of sink into the vortex that is 128 different hats yeah yeah M- much like in in edgar's hat trick where it's just oh this is the magic trick i do oh my god i pulled out a dead rabbit oh my god i'm sad this is just a triptych of three of those stories Here's what we're trying to do. Here's the the logical steps we will take into absurdity to try to accomplish our task. And well, now we're stuck and we're kind of sad and crazy. End. Next part. Bump, bump, bump. Now we're kind of sad and crazy. <laughs> bump, bump, bump. We should put now the, we're, we're, we now should we're... have that as Adam Ehrlich's, you know, on his tombstone slash tagline. We should kind of the same thing, right? What, now love... I'm sad and crazy. Yeah. Oh, I cannot shake off the the kind of hope that is inherent in, in that kind of absurdity. Because to me, it's it's no, like there's this, there's this thing called the myth of Sisyphus, which is about... Uh, pushing the rock up the hill. Yeah, pushing the rock up the hill. And that... Uh, I don't remember if it's in the myth of Sisyphus. No, no, it's in it's in Camus' interpretation that the the secret to life is being able to imagine Sisyphus as happy. <laughs> it's like if you can't do that, then you cannot live a happy life because life is nothing but pushing up a pushing a rock up a hill that you will never it's so ever true. get to the top. It's so true. You yeah. gotta. That's what you know. My the secret to writing, I think, is to think about it as writing itself is enjoyable. The process is enjoyable. If you ever think that it's purely to see the result, to see the story that comes out, to get some kind of publication or fandom, I think that that is the one way ticket to yeah a noose. And the definition of despair. <laughs> yes. The the inability to let go. Uh, yeah. To zen out. Boom boom boom. The last part in the triptych, the the part where the person living on the street turns out to be the smartest person in history who then uh, goes back in history to kill his own grandfather to make sure he can't be the smartest person in history. Well, there's nothing more boring than being the smartest guy in the room. Right. <laughs> I mean, that guy just has it, has it all solved. But he... There is entertainment in that, but it also did come across a little bit like a shaggy dog story because at the end of it, I think it ends with an exclamation mark, which I'm not not a fan of. Yeah, I think I think there is no doubt that that is to an extent what it is and that part of your ability to enjoy the story is whether or not you appreciate that the form of the story matches the content, that 
all of in all of these attempts to try to to connect with the past or for for a son or for a kid to connect to their parent or to somehow well, well to put it this way i remember i remember the saying that i have no idea who said it that the past is a foreign country and a lot gets lost in translation and any attempt to speak the language of the past is, is a shaggy dog story. It's a long and pointless story that, ha- what did, how did you describe the ending? With only yourself as the punchline. Yeah, with only yourself as the punchline. And yeah, and that's, that is what these three triptychs kind of add up to. And, and it is, to me, it is like the myth of Sisyphus. It is like, I look at these triptychs and I go, oh, humans. And I just shake my head and sigh and kind of smile at the ridiculous links we go to to do impossible things. Let's talk for a moment about why hats are so damn symbolic. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, let's talk, let's talk about some hats. So, like, up until, I guess, the 1920s, 1930s, it was really common for people to wear hats every day in the UK, right? Bowler hats, fedora hats, flat caps... Peaky Blinder hats. Yeah, 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 yeah. So did they, and I guess they carried with them a kind of um, class identifier, right? You wore the hat that was associated with the profession or the the way you spent your days. Yes, and and, uh, just as people take their Levi jeans now and beat them up uh, artificially, (laughs) I mean, buy them already beat up, That is what happened with cowboy hats in the U.S. because cowboy hats were seen as this great marker of a kind of masculinity. But the way we imagine cowboy hats now with the little dent at the top and the curved rims, no, they they just, cowboys bought hats with undented brim, undented hats. Oh, and they just got battered in the process of... And people saw them and were like, that's cool. And a company was like, we should totally make hats that look like that and sell them to people. And sell them on Broad Street in Nashville so they can go to the Mm honky-tonk. Oh, readers, if you've never been to Nashville, make sure you go, but don't go to Broad Street. Broadway. Broadway. Don't Don't go to Broadway. It's the least appealing part. Yeah, don't go to Broadway. Uh, you go slightly off Broadway. You could go to the exit in. Uh, you could go across the river, as all the cool people do, and go to East Nashville and go to the five spot. Uh, or you could you could ultimately just skip skip all the music and go to Patterson House and have a real <laughs> foot Manhattan. Seriously, <gasps> best. just ask for a real foot Manhattan. They will know what you mean. It's not on the menu. Doesn't matter. They'll make it. It's a regular for Manhattan. You. <laughs> It's a regular Manhattan washed with Laphroaig? Uh, yeah, so they wash the glass with Laphroaig and then they make it with... Oh, it's a specific kind of uh, whatever kind of rye whiskey they use. I okay. don't know what it is. I mean, whatever whiskey they use is really good. Yes, and the washing with the Laphroaig is really special. Um, and they you have could the also, best ice fairs I've ever seen. Yeah. You know what else you should drink if you go to the Patterson House in Nashville? What should you drink? You should drink the Ulysses. What's in it? Uh, three kinds of tequila. <laughs> and it's so good. <laughs> what was the drink they gave you the day James Gandolfini died and we went? Well, that is a good question for both of the stories we've read. Because the name of the drink is Defeated by Greater Things. Oh, so true. Uh, that was, oh. yeah. Talk about trying to have a conversation with the past. I was like, hey, 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 bartender, I, I just seen that James Gandolfini died. Can you make me a drink in honor of that? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. That's the kind of place it is. It's amazing. Yeah, that is Story Logical this week. 
As always, we probably did not talk about all the stories that you have loved this week or in your life. So hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storylogical, which is... Story, as in the word story. O, as in the sound you make when your ceiling falls down. <laughs> no H. Followed by logical. Oh, that's true. It's just, just the letter O. Yeah, followed by logical, like Spock. Or you can find us at storylogical.com. See you next week. Happy reading.